Hello and greetings from Cologne, Germany, where we're wrapping up two intense weeks that began a few dozen kilometers north of us in the former German capital of Bonn, where climate negotiators have begun the process of activating the Paris Agreement. We used this as an opportunity to release our annual survey of the voluntary carbon markets, which takes stock of what individuals, corporations, and governments have been doing to offset their greenhouse gas emissions until the Paris Agreement takes effect, which could happen as early as next year. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better than it is, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we explore each week on Bionic Planet, a new podcast of the Anthropocene, the modern epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. Today, our focus is voluntary carbon markets. Green-minded companies use them to reduce their carbon footprints by offsetting those greenhouse gas emissions that they aren't able to eliminate by, say, retooling their factories or switching to renewable energy. Individuals use them as well, often to offset their travel emissions, as do governments. New research from Ecosystem Marketplace shows that these three groups used voluntary carbon markets to reduce emissions by about 84 million tons of carbon dioxide last year alone. But the real story isn't the volume, which is still too small to change the world, but rather how those offsets are used in ever more complex and effective emission reduction strategies. engage in voluntary offsetting for a number of different reasons, but I think one of the, the sort of key takeaways that we can say about them is that they've usually already looked at their emissions, they've already tried to reduce as much as possible, and then they're at that point where they say, okay, I want to go above and beyond. That's my Ecosystem Marketplace colleague, Kelly Hamrick, who spent a good chunk of the last six months on the phone with thousands of carbon market participants, cobbling together the latest State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets report, which is entitled Raising Ambition to Reflect the Ever-Increasing Emission Reduction Targets Embedded in the Paris Agreement. You can download the report at ecosystemmarketplace.com forward slash articles forward slash voluntary 2016. Once again, that's ecosystemmarketplace.com forward slash articles forward slash voluntary 2016. Voluntary carbon markets provide a way for companies to reduce their overall emissions by, say, saving endangered forests or planting trees or financing the construction of wind farms. They're not to be confused with compliance markets, which are imposed under a cap-and-trade regime like the one in California. 
If you heard our two earlier episodes focused on the need to create a price on carbon, you know that the goal of such a price is to force companies to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that they pump into the atmosphere. Voluntary markets are different. They're not so much an incentive as they are an enabling mechanism because companies and individuals that use them aren't doing so to comply with the law but to to do the right thing. In fact, our research shows that companies that buy offsets are usually also the ones that have already done the most to reduce their emissions internally. And they're using offsets to get to zero net emissions, or at least try to. Offsetting, in other words, is almost never a standalone strategy, but rather one component in a larger, more involved emission reduction approach. I had a brief chat with Kelly right after she posted the report and asked her how voluntary offsets usually fit into a company's emission reduction program. You know, you get some, you could have a huge multinational corporation that, you know, is is looking at what its suppliers are doing in different countries around the world and maybe they're supporting carbon offset projects that are directly related to their supply chain. Um, So, for example, I think Coop, which is a national grocer in Switzerland, they purchase offsets from these projects that are agricultural projects that, you know, these agricultural farms are reducing offsets through these projects, but then they're also shipping their asparagus or their flowers or, you know, their produce back to Switzerland. So it's a very sort of intrinsic, innate connection. Um, And then for other companies, you know, it's really, it's more that maybe they don't need that supply chain aspect, but they just really, they like a specific aspect of a project. I mean, it's a very personal thing for some of them. Uh, it could be that they really like where it's located. It could be that they really like that it's working with indigenous people or that it's working to also protect habitat for endangered species. Ideally, companies would eliminate emissions rather than try to offset them. And that the, the, the better companies, which um, unfortunately are the minority of all companies, have already done that or tried to. And some are even going beyond their own factory walls. Can you elaborate on that? It's a lot of jargon, but essentially there is what what is called three different scopes um, for emissions. And so if you're a company, then you want to look at your scopes one, two, and three. Um, And scope one and scope two are basically all of your direct emissions and like the electricity that you use, um, all of that. And scope three is sort of everything else down the supply chain. Um, So it could also include flights. Um, So really, you know, for a company, if you really want to address climate change, let's say you're a really small mom and pop grocery store, you know, it could be that maybe you sh- you try and turn off the lights more, you try and get LED bulbs, you really do a lot of stuff within your own sort of physical building. But then there comes a point where maybe you're buying products and those products are being shipped halfway around the world. I mean, you can't actually address that by yourself. Um, and so that's when you have these emissions that you can't really reduce. So then you invest in an offset project, which is going to reduce emissions sort of on behalf of of that. Um, I mean, I think if you look at uh, Natura, which is, you know, a giant Brazilian cosmetics company, you know, they purchased offsets from the Surawee tribe a while back. And that was in part because I think they wanted to support local projects in Brazil, um, but also because, you know, a lot of new products that go on to be used in the cosmetic industry come from the Amazon. And so you, in a way, there's sort of, it's an investment in the future that they want to be able to make sure that maybe these products that are, might disappear through deforestation are still going to exist. A lot of people today talk about insetting. What is that? What's, what's insetting and what's the difference between insetting 
and offsetting. So basically, insetting is sort of like the example I gave about Coop, you know, purchasing offsets from one of its suppliers who maybe provides them with flowers. Um, so the idea with insetting is that you're reducing emissions um, further downstream in your supply chain. Um, the difference between insetting and offsetting is that offsetting you're actually buying offsets, um, which are sort of a discrete environmental unit, and you're paying money for them, and you have like a certificate, and it's all recorded. Um, the thing with insetting is that it's it's a bit more informal, I think, um, because essentially, if you're trying to reduce emissions downstream in the supply chain, you don't necessarily want to go through all of the same hoops and hurdles and, and contracts that you would for offsetting, mm -hmm. um, which is actually, I think, it's a really interesting thing that I would love for us to actually look into more, but data-wise, we don't have that data because it's not something people report to us because it's mm -hmm. not a third-party transaction. Um, so it's this really sort of, I think, up-and-coming field, but it's really hard to tell what the extent is because we don't have a way of actually trying to empirically catch that. <laughs> so with uh, Scope 3, if I were... Um say buying a car, I, I wouldn't just offset the gasoline I use. I would actually go and try to figure out how many emissions how many emissions were generated throughout the entire process of creating this car, going back to the steel mills and everything else, and then I would I would offset that. Yeah, exactly. And I think the most difficult thing about scope three is really, you know, you can go on forever, right? You can you can go back to what materials were used and how are they how much energy was used in making the car. You can go back to, you know, how much energy was used to extract the materials. And a lot of companies, I mean, what you usually start with is what's simple. You know, you can start with flights. You can start with transportation. Um, but, you know, as you, as you sort of check those boxes off, you can keep expanding down the supply chain. Um, and so there's really a lot of different opportunities to look at your emissions. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we're still, for some of these, limited by the science. I mean, that's a lot... I don't know if you could actually go all the way back with that with your Prius. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so it's, you know, in some sense it's limiting, but these people, you know, they want to go right now. They want to try and address the climate problems right now, so they're offsetting what emissions they can measure but can't reduce that they know of. Now, you said you track transactions. Uh, so offs offsets bought and sold, but you don't track offsets created, and you, and you, they're, they're, you described a fairly complicated life cycle of an emission reduction. I wonder if you could just summarize that for us. Essentially, when you first have an offset and it's first issued, um, that's when, you know, it's it's been verified. Someone, or usually multiple people, have gone through you to say, you know, this emissions reduction has actually occurred, and we have put our seal of approval on it. And, and who are these people? Um, so typically verifiers. Um, so you have these third-party companies who will come back and, you know, so the project developer essentially will say, okay, look, I'm doing these activities. I'm reducing this many emissions. There's, you know, some aspect of measurement that's involved in that aspect, but then you don't want to just take people at their word. Um, and so then you have these verification agencies come in and actually audit and make sure and say, yes, that's correct. They're actually reducing these emissions. Um, and so then after all of that whole process occurs, which sometimes, I mean, that can take years sometimes, and once you go through all of that, then you finally can issue an offset, um, which is essentially, you know, this tradable, exchangeable unit um, that represents one emissions reduction. Um, and so at that point, then a project developer or someone else can sell the offset to another person. Um, and so that's what we track are these transactions, which are really, you know, they're really more a measure of market health, um, because 
what can actually happen is you can have a project developer maybe sell it to a company who collects a lot of offsets, who then goes around and sells those offsets that they bought onto what we would call the end buyer, which is the company that actually plans to use that offset. Um, and then when that actually happens at that end of the, the chain, an offset should be retired. And that means that essentially whoever the end buyer is, they take that offset, they permanently put it away. Um, it's on this thing called a registry which basically is just another sort of third-party platform, which just actually makes sure that, you know, companies aren't just holding on to these offsets and then every year just claiming the exact same ones over and over and saying, oh, yeah, well, look, we've already got this number. We're carbon neutral. It's like, no, they actually need to retire it. They aren't allowed to touch it anymore. Um, so it's a way of maintaining the integrity of that offset. So, who are the buyers? Ultimately, they're companies that want to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. But sometimes they're brokers as well. And they can also be a new breed of consultancy that helps manage emission reductions. Let's meet some now. My name is Daniela Spiesmann. I do work for Deutsche Post DHL Group, which you internationally might better know under the DHL Logistics brand. My name is Zubair Zakir. I work with uh, Natural Capital Partners uh, in London. My name is William Tyson. Um, I work for EcoAct, which is a group of experts um, working with the public and private sector on achieving climate neutrality. One of our major impact is carbon, so we heavily look into what we can do in this area, including um, solutions for our customers, and there we come to the voluntary carbon market. Uh, we have been working for the last couple of decades with private businesses around the world managing their environmental footprints through the use of environmental instruments. Well, of course uh, the first thing that we go to is the average price and we were like oh no 3.3 dollars <laughs> but yeah, I think you guys did a really good job. Did you hear what he said about price? If you heard our episodes on the need for a price on carbon you know that 3.3 dollars is nowhere near the social cost of carbon or the cost of damages that carbon dioxide causes once it's in the atmosphere. Now, I know what I said before about voluntary carbon offsets being an enabling mechanism more than an incentive, and that's true. But one way they enable companies to reduce is to create an internal price on carbon. That's a price that companies can use to push greenhouse gas emissions into the corporate consciousness. That just doesn't happen at $3.3 per ton. So lots of companies buy low externally and then sell high internally. But that leaves another problem. Most emission reduction projects simply aren't viable at $3.3 per ton. Now, there are plenty of reasons the price is so low. It's mostly because prices reflect political will, and political will has been pretty pathetic until last year. But it's also because the offsets sold last year were created earlier, so there was an oversupply, and it's because large transactions can get away with a lower price. Ultimately, however, a price this low just isn't sustainable. But there's a sense that that will be changing after Paris, in part because there are so many other initiatives underway outside of and tangential to the Paris Agreement. We had the sustainable development goals. We had the science-based targets. Um, we had um, 
you know, the carbon pricing initiatives. So, sustainable development goals, science-based targets, and carbon pricing. We've covered carbon pricing a bit in our previous editions of Bionic Planet, and we're far from finished with that rabbit hole. Well, we'll be covering the sustainable development goals in the next edition, so if you're not familiar with them, be sure to subscribe to Bionic Planet or check back soon. The gist is that more and more companies are responding to demands for carbon neutrality. And while many start out by just offsetting, they soon weave offsetting into a broader emission reduction strategy. What we saw is that some companies were really doing it for carbon neutrality purposes and that's it. Um, But others were doing more on a holistic approach. Um, So really trying to figure out how they could integrate Uh, carbon offsetting into their internal carbon price that they were evaluating. So does that mean that we were kind of expanding our our services as well to be a little bit more strategic? The reality is that companies are looking at their, um, or certainly the the, the responsive feedback we're getting in a much more holistic (laughs) manner. Um, And for me, the really powerful thing about that is now all of a sudden, Uh, perhaps not all of a sudden, but after a significant period of time, perhaps we can stop having a conversation about whether offsetting is the right thing to do or not, uh, or whether it works. This market's here to stay, and it does work. And I think that's been demonstrated um, time and time again, but it's pretty clear. Um, The challenge that we have is how to, in in the fragmented world (laughs) that we are in, um, how to address the individual challenges, individual business drivers of companies in, in particular regions. It's a theme that emerged over and over again at Carbon Expo, but one often lost on most observers and the media. Carbon offsetting isn't a distraction, as some like to say, and it isn't a way for companies to, quote, buy their way out of their obligation. Instead, it's a tool that helps get companies and customers and suppliers all pointing in the same direction, as Daniela Spiesmann of DHL makes clear. We started with offsetting, but purely on the voluntary base, not market, but voluntary base, um, because we came up with a product for our customers. So we realized um, already around 2005, 2006, that this might be interesting to look into, even though the customer demand was not super high. So that was like um, pre-Copenhagen, the public discussion was not really yet started um, but we said oh let's test that that might be interesting so uh, we came up with a kind of a parcel you ship uh, carbon neutral today we say climate neutral we uh, expanded our calculation um, and we tested that with some customers and in 2006 was actually the first year where we offered that as a verified service to our customers starting in Germany and some Scandinavian countries Um, We expanded the service over the last years and actually two years after this uh, project uh, or or product start, we came up with our comprehensive Go Green environmental protection program. And there we're linking the two parts. So we, from the beginning on, we mainly look into carbon because that's the major environmental impact of logistics business. Our business still heavily depends on fossil fuels. Um, With the overall environmental um, program in the company, we focus on how can we improve our carbon efficiency. Um, This nowadays um, is becoming visible, for example, with a so-called carbon-free delivery in Bonn. 
and the Bonn region, um, where we actually fully have switched our first and last mile operations to electromobility on green energy. Um, and in Germany especially, we look now how to expand that concept to further cities. Um, and also through our express operations globally, there's quite some more potential in that. DHL's Go Green initiative is worthy of an entire program. And if I have the bandwidth to deliver, I will, because it involves a complete restructuring of the company's transport system, but one that uses carbon offsetting to drive awareness. And it's hardly an exception. Companies like Unilever, Marks & Spencer, Microsoft, and General Motors have all used voluntary carbon markets to drive down emissions and raise awareness at the same time. For our customers, and that's where, for me, it's very interesting also to look into the report, um, the quality is important, and it's important to us to offer, offer them a service which is credible, and this comes with two things. So the one is we more or less from the beginning on linked our uh, offsetting service for customers to the activities we run in the group. So we tell you as a customer, you can do offsetting today, you ship your stuff climate neutrally with us around the world, but we also work on reducing those emissions and becoming more and more efficient. And we realize no matter what customer you talk to, um, this is really helping you to get properly positioned and show that it's not only something you do on top, but it's really integrated into your overall environmental approach. You're listening to Bionic Planet, the podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. Do you like what you've heard so far? Do you want to hear more? If so, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or TuneIn or Stitcher or whichever service you use to access us. And let the good people of the world know what you think by leaving an honest five-star review, because the more good reviews we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more funding we get. And right now, Bionic Planet has no funding of its own. It's essentially a labor of love, and I'm both the labor and the love. Bionic Planet is written by me, produced by me, and hosted by me, albeit with voluntary support from my colleagues at Forest Trends and Ecosystem Marketplace. If all you do is subscribe, that's great. But if you want to help us materially, you can make a tax-deductible donation to Bionic Planet through Ecosystem Marketplace or Forest Trends. That's EcosystemMarketplace.com and Forest-Trends.org but be sure to let them know it's to support Bionic Planet. That way, the money will go towards the freelance budget of Ecosystem Marketplace so that we can commission more stories for the site that we, in turn, can adapt into coverage for Bionic Planet. If the tax deduction isn't that important, you can also support me directly through the Donations tab at bionic-planet.com. Ultimately, I'd like to scale this up, make it big enough to attract commercial advertising, because that means I'm reaching enough people to make it worth your while to support this effort. And reaching people is what this is all about. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, email me, Steve Zwick, at steve at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's steve at bionic-planet.com. That wraps up today's show, and be sure to follow our coverage of the Bond Talks at EcosystemMarketplace.com forward slash articles forward slash Bond 2016. Also, to download your copy of the State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets, visit EcosystemMarketplace.com forward slash articles forward slash Voluntary 2016. 
Be sure to check back either next week or the week after for our next installment of Bionic Planet, which will examine in more detail the interplay between carbon markets and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I'll be posting new episodes as quickly as I can, and hopefully by the end of summer, we'll be posting these weekly. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening.